Underdog Collectibles is an online shop run for collectors by collectors. Join them every Sunday, Tuesday, and Thursday night as they break new products, talk sports, and hopefully you'll pull a great hit to add to your collection. Visit them at www.udogcollect.com and tell them Wax Pack Hero sent you. Remember, always bet on the underdog. You're listening to the Wax Pack Hero Sports Card Minute, a podcast where we discuss both the hobby and business sides of collecting. I'm your host, Mike Summer, and I want to help you buy, sell, and trade your way into a collection you'll love. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to another episode. Today, I've got a conversation with Ty Wilson, the man behind BreakerCulture.com and the Breaker Culture podcast. We're going to talk a little bit about his collecting background. We're going to talk about the origins of his creation of sports card content and how he decided to turn that into a business. Enjoy the conversation. Ty, welcome to the show. Well, hey. Good morning. How are you? I'm doing well. It's uh, Saturday morning. It's pretty cloudy here in central Illinois. Looks like we're going to get some rain later. Oh, I think you're getting our rain. <laughs> you're getting our big storm, hopefully. Yeah, hopefully it, it gets through here. It's starting to get pretty dry. Yeah. Well, hey, I'm glad we got a chance to connect here and um, talk a little bit about Ty Wilson and Breaker Culture. Hmm. It's got a nice ring to it. Hey, there you go. Maybe we just get started by giving us a little bit of your collecting background. Uh, yeah, so, so the collecting background. Um, so I, I mean, I've been collecting really since I was, I don't know, since I can remember. Right? My parents were pretty good about letting us as kids, like brothers, collect growing up. And so we would save up our allowance and buy cards as young kids. And I can still remember 20-something years ago, rounding up the kids in the neighborhood and having, like, trading parties. I feel like that's kind of a, the forgotten art of sports cards, <laughs> getting together and trading cards. Who would have thunk? Every once in a while, we still do that at the some of the local shows. But Yeah, yeah, that's true. Yeah, and some shops facilitate that well. But, but no, man, I, I grew up collecting, you know, Royals cards. I grew up collecting um, somewhat of a Chiefs collector, but I end up gravitating towards, like, Drew Bledsoe and in certain players that I really liked. I liked the San Antonio Spurs a lot growing up. So yeah, I just built collections that way. And, and I had a couple of close friends that were really big collectors as well. And so we, we would all go to card shops together and collect our guys. And, and I'm mean, gosh, I still remember like buying finest and SP when they hit the streets for the first time, like a 93 for finest, you know, an SP trying to chase the Derek Jeter rookie. Like those were the days, man. Like those were, some of my best memories in sports were those days. What was your first set? First, like What was set? the year that you started collecting that kind of that first set that you started to buy a lot of? That's a good question. I, it's one of the collector's choice sets um, because those are the ones I could afford <laughs> to get mm-hmm. the 99 cent packs. Right. Um, so I think I had a few of the collector's choice sets, but it was a, it was a lot of the basketball. I remember the, uh, the 95, 96, like 96, 97 Fleer Ultra basketball being a really important one for me. So, Okay, so I started mid-80s. It sounds like you started early 90s then. Correct, yeah. So I was 10 and 82 or 92. So, yeah, I, like early 90s is when I can remember the most. Well, how about now? What do you collect now? 
Um, so now it's a little bit more about what my sons want to collect, right? So I, I, um, we're big Mizzou fans, Mizzou Tigers. So we collect a lot of Mizzou players. So like Michael Porter Jr., we go after, and then we're we're all about the Royals. So we have a pretty when we when we open product and sell it, we're we're doing it as a way to fund our Royals collection more or less. So we, me and the boys have a good Royals collection. My my older son is a big Chris Bryant fan, so. We got expensive taste, man. From Michael Porter to Chris Bryant to like Bobby Witt, like you can't. <laughs> you got some of the most expensive guys in the hobby. That that is true. Although Bryant's come down a little bit over this uh, last year, or so very true. Kind of off his peak. At what point in that whole process did you start to do the the selling aspect, or when did some of that kind of business side of things mm-hmm. come in for you? Yeah, so I would say it was probably in the late 90s, in early 2000s, when I was in college, um, maybe late high school, and I realized I need some cash. <laughs> mm-hmm. And so I started selling off some of my cards. And at that time, like eBay really wasn't, it wasn't as big, right? It was, there wasn't a, a true sports card marketplace. But it was, I mean, I, I tried to sell them on eBay, but I remember just, thinking about flipping and like trying to go to to Walmart and grab you know boxes of cards and open them and flip them and, and even then like buying them on blowout back then in the early 2000s and opening and, and trying to make money was was trying to hustle and do it but it wasn't very lucrative it was <laughs> experimenting did you have that kind of stereotypical break or it sounds like maybe you were fairly consistent from the time that you started through today or or did you have a, a break a break as in like as in not moment? really being an active collector or not really being active in the hobby. Oh, gotcha. Uh, you know, I really didn't. I would say maybe the first my wife and I've been married for 15 years. And I would say maybe that first year or two of marriage where it felt foolish spending like the little money we had on cards. Sure. There was a break there. Right. But I still had cards and still, you know, had a collection and enjoyed it. So at, at what point did the idea for the breakerculture.com site start. Yeah. So that was probably in, um, see, what are we in now? 2020. So in, in 14, uh, my wife and I, and three kids at the time, we were overseas doing some missions work in China. And, uh, I had been into cards for a long time heading up to that. But when we left for China, we, I wasn't doing cards obviously in China. And, uh, I was talking to some guys that I knew relatively well. One of them, uh, you guys probably know like Brent and Becca, you know, Brent mm-hmm. Williams, communicating with him kind of while I was overseas. And I, I started to get the vibe that there was a lot of breaker transparency issues. And so I, I sorry about my dog in the background, by the way. Yeah, that's good. It's, it's natural. Uh, <laughs> I'm in my natural habitat. <laughs> uh, no, I, I just realized there was a, there was an issue with, with, you know, filling out reviews and understanding kind of what's going on with group breakers. And so I thought, you know what, I'm going to, I'm going to kind of help the hobby a little bit and put together this group breaking review site because I'm tired of seeing all these posts about people getting ripped off. Mm-hmm. And so I, it started, it started as this idea of a Yelp for group breaking and that's kind of where it breaker culture, you know, spawned out of. It was in 2005, 2006. 2005 to or 2015. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, 2015. Yeah. 15 years ago. Um, yeah, no, 2015. Sorry. Okay. And then at what point did you add on the the podcast aspect of that? Yeah, so it, it it quickly evolved, right? For the first year or two, it was it was it was helpful. You know, I got a lot of pushback. People were were frustrated that you know 
people could be honest about their group breaking and then some group breakers group breakers were, were very open to it but i would say probably 2017 it started to evolve into this well shoot everyone's buying cards to uh, the group breakings kind of encouraged flipping and investing and all these you know new terms in the hobby and sort of evolved into an analytics site and then out of that um in late 2017 and early 2018 we started the podcast and it first few were were just me and then i had shani uh pellet on and shani's been a big part of you know doing the podcast and he's he's uh he's kind of the backbone of getting all that started and still still is pops on every four or five episodes to to join the podcast when i got back into the hobby in 2015 16 and then started to throughout 17 try to find as much hobby content as I could. That's when I stumbled across your site and the podcast. And one of the things, well, there's, there's two things that really stood out to me. And one is the analytics that you put on the website mm -hmm. as, as a helpful resource for people. So let's start there. Is that mm -hmm. something that you have a, a background in? Is that something that you developed as you were I'm getting more and more into developing the site or, you know, where did that analytics perspective come from, I guess? Yeah, I think, I guess inherently I'm, I'm probably a numbers guy more so than anything else. Um, so I went to school for finance and, and I'm drawn to that stuff, but, uh, yeah, I, I guess there's, there's certain technologies, right? There's a, there's a, there's a platform called Tableau that's really great for that type of stuff. And I got, hooked into that and, and enjoy using Tableau. And once I figured out how to use it and then I figured out how to extract data from, you know, an eBay repository, I realized, holy crap, I can do some cool stuff with this. Uh, and I think it's one of those things, you probably know this too, Mike. It's like when you, when you throw stuff out there and then people start hitting you up and saying, wow, man, this is really helpful. Like, I can't wait to see the next report. And you see that like consistently, it, start, it starts to, you know, motivate you to, to put more work into it. And so I, I started to see that, you know, fairly consistently with some of the reports I was doing, like people really enjoyed it. So then it reaches the point where it's like, oh boy, like now I'm putting, you know, 20 hours a week into this <laughs> yeah. and, I'm not, and I'm making, not making any money, right? This is not good. I got to figure out something to do here. <laughs> and that kind of leads me to kind of that, that next follow on question is yeah. one of the things that I appreciate most about I don't know if appreciate most is the best way to say it. One of the things that I'm very interested in is combining both the hobby and the business, right? Yep. And figuring out a way to both celebrate this hobby that we all enjoy, as well as turn it into something that can generate some extra income. And um, I know you've got a, a day job that you're, you know, your primary focus and, and breaker culture and the podcast and everything is kind of a side hustle, similar for me as Wax Pack Hero. Mm -hmm. I, is that kind of what you just said there of you, you realized how much time you were spending on it and wanted to say, is, hey, is there a way that I could generate some revenue from this? At what point did you decide to try to start to experiment with sponsorships and the Patreon program that you've got and some of those things that allow you to generate some some revenue from this and and see some financial reward from the the benefit that you're providing collectors? Yeah, no, I think it's very well put. No, I think it was probably in late 2018. 
uh, at that point, I'd run the site for over two years and the podcast for a bit. And I mean, it, it was legitimately I sat down with my wife and, and she, we both agreed like this is taking up so much time. It's, it's becoming more than just a hobby. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, where I, I just I agree. I agree with her. Like, look, I have to come up with a way to make this somewhat lucrative to pouring more time into it. And I get it, man. Everyone likes free content and I love putting out free content. Right. But at the same time, you should you should you should strive to put out content that people would want to pay for. That's the kind that's kind of the way I've framed it now. Um, all that to say, it was probably in late 2018 where I started dabbling in like really tying in affiliate revenue into the site. Okay. So, you know, all the eBay stuff. And there's been plenty of conversations about that on, you know, our podcast about it. But, um, you know, being able to help at least get a little bit of a kickback for for putting out, you know, reports and things like that. And then I would say early 2019 started to sign up some sponsors for the site. Um, and that that's, that's never been a very, you know, key driver for the site or revenue. Um, but it was probably mid 2019. So uh, it's been, it's been over a year now where we had the Patreon up and that was just one of those things where I had folks saying, Hey, can you do this for me? Can you do that for me? Can we, can we dive deeper into this type of insight? And I thought, you know what, let me put together something where people want to pay for this, you know, 15 bucks a month and I'm, and I can spend an extra 10 hours a week or 10 hours, uh, you know, every couple of weeks putting together really deep reports for them and they want to pay for it, then I'll do it. And so that that totally surprised me with how many people were interested in that. And I have a, a very solid group of people that that, uh, that pay for that every month now. So It's an interesting balance to walk between, you know, you still have a lot of good free content on the site, but then where do you draw that line of, okay, this is what I can do for free and this is what I want to add on to um, the, the Patreon membership side of things. Do you have like a rule of thumb on what you use to kind of draw that distinction? Yeah. So I, I would say there's two things. One, um, typically for Patreon users, I'll give, I'll give content, uh, early. So I'll put out stuff that might end up on the site anyway, but I'm going to give it to Patreon users, you know, three or four days before it hits the site. Um, because a lot of people use it now for, you know, them making decisions on their, you know, spending in, in the hobby. Where do I spend? Where do I sell? Where do I buy? All these things. And that's kind of what they're, they're using to drive their decisions. Um, and then others, I just certain pricing ladders and things like that. I've always had free on the site and I, I will always keep free on the site, but I don't do them like weekly anymore in the site. It'll be more like a monthly report that summarizes content. So yeah, it's a, it's a fine balance. You're right. It is tough, right? It's just, <laughs> you get some people that are rubbed the wrong way with it. And, and some people understand like t- time is valuable. Like time's the one thing we can't get back, you know? Yep. And so I have to, I'm trying to be sensitive to my family, right? I'm, I'm held accountable to my family. That's, that's all I know. The other aspect that it attracted me to what you were doing was the podcast itself. And even, I mean, well before I started this podcast, I had been listening to you. And one of the things that stood out to me was just your interview style and the, the conversational nature that you had with the people and stores and uh, breakers and things like that, that you were interviewing. Did you have much of a background in podcasting, interviewing, presentation, you know, that whole 
interpersonal aspect of things or, or is that something that you just had naturally or you developed along the way? What's the story with the, the podcasting and interview stuff? <laughs> First off, you have a great style too, by the way, you do a really good job. Um, but I, I would say I, I've been in sales in software sales for a long time. And so communicating with people and asking questions is part of what I've had to do for a decade. Um, so I think it's maybe just in my blood to a certain extent, but you get the first couple out of the way and you start to learn kind of how the podcast world works, what, what audience is like, and you just, you get your style and you kind of stick to it. And I think that's one of those things. The first, if you look, if I, in fact, I think I, I moved them off of the, uh, iTunes world. Like the first 10 podcasts were so bad. They were just <laughs> terrible. Um, and it was just, I, you realize, when you speak over people, when you don't ask leading questions, we don't ask like second level questions. Like it, it's just, it's boring. People don't want to hear me talk. They want to hear the interviewee talk. Lessons learned. Lessons learned is how we got there. But thank you for the compliment. I appreciate it. You're welcome. Now at some point late second half of last year, um, the bench clear media network started that, that you're heavily a part of. Yep. Can you tell me kind of what the origin for that that was? Yeah, I think so. The idea behind Bench Clear is, is is relatively straightforward. Like we, there was a group of us that thought, you know what? Like there's a this the the hobby is just it's a straight line upwards right now. Like uh, there's just so much excitement around the hobby, and yeah, you're right. This is this is during the national where we really started having conversations around this. This is Jeff and I, you know, from Pack Geek, sitting down, and he's a He's a big time media guy. And so we just started talking about how would it, what would it look like to get, you know, certain content producers together just to, in, in one channel to put out constant content, you know, daily, every few days and just have a constant flow of good stuff coming from one spot. And so that's kind of the, that was the simple idea behind it. It's, it's changed a little bit since then. We're trying to figure out how to navigate it, but it's, and it's going well, I think, but it's just, uh, <laughs> There's so many different niches in the hobby, like trying to figure out where to satisfy people and what people want and is, is difficult. So we're trying to navigate those waters a little bit. But yeah, the, the idea is to have a one place, one stop shop for um, constant content coming out and uh, to do it in a way that you know, doesn't, doesn't cost money. It's, it's free. You go to the site and you have all this good stuff and typically focused on the YouTube world right now. So kind of trying to be kind of a central hub for, for content. Yeah. I mean, a perfect world would be, you know, have a, have a channel that's got stuff on every day, every, you know, you, you know that you can tune on you know, Thursday night, you're going to have a couple shows that are running their, their episodes and you can put it in the background, watch it while you're collecting and all that stuff. So we'll see if that works out. Okay. Have there been other hobby related, I want to say spinoffs, but that's not quite the right term, but other associated sites or content focuses that that have come as you've grown as you've expanded as you've tried some of these new things um yeah lots of them <laughs> um i would say uh I, i've helped with a lot of different things not necessarily like they're my own things but i've helped with a lot of things more recently i've, I've kind of helped craft some of the the style over at the daily hobby.com. So the, the aggregated news site, um, use some of my web expertise now to help with that. And then, um, 
Yeah, little things on the group breaker side, just kind of giving my feedback. And I've, I've never fully, you know, been a part of any group breaker site because that's that would be a conflict of interest, I think. But um, help provide feedback and kind of groups starting up and what I mean, it's very easy, right? Go back and listen to episodes and you can hear these guys that have been doing this for 10 years talk about what they've gone through. That's probably the easiest way, but get a lot of those questions. People think I'm the expert, right? Because I interview them, but it's like the experts are the ones I'm interviewing. Right, right. <laughs> As you started to get the site up and running and you started to grow, was there a certain strategy or approach that has worked well for you to start to gain some of that traction? Yeah. So with uh, with the site, you're talking like just in terms of traffic and stuff like that? Yeah. To start to gain yeah. attention, to start to gain traffic, to get feedback, you know, to test, yep. you know, what's worked and what's not working. Yeah. Yeah. I think early on, right, when... I mean, like 2016, you didn't have you didn't have a ton of competition in the Google SEO world uh, around sports cards. You had Cardboard Connection, right? And you had Beckett and you had a couple other players. But, you know, for you to put out content and, and have some keywords in your, you know, your titles and your descriptions, like you were for the most part going to get some traffic. Um, so realizing like then just having consistent content, labeling it well, and building up an SEO presence was absolutely crucial. And that that takes time. Like back mm -hmm. then it took a year, right? And right, and these days it takes even longer because of the way the Google algorithms are set up. But but now, right, you're competing against hundreds of group breakers for SEO. You're competing against a lot of, you know, sports card investing sites and all that stuff that are putting good money into buying up you know, the keywords and, and making it more expensive to, you know, to acquire traffic. So for those starting out, like my, my advice is always, you got, you have to be strategic about the way you, you word things. You don't, you don't want it to be clickbait, but it's got to tie back to what you're talking about and you have to be consistent, like right. very consistent or it does not work. What was something that you found to be a challenge or something maybe that didn't work out as well as you were hoping? Well, I would say maybe the the impetus behind breaker culture, the beginning, right? The the whole group break reviews, like it's still around a little bit, right? But that's not what we do now, and and it's just with with Google and Facebook groups now, like it's so the transparency is there with the blowout forms now being able to, you know, you can talk about anybody, <laughs> Twitter, you know, Twitter groups. Um, you don't need a place to go get reviews for breakers these days. Um, you'll, you'll know pretty quickly just by Googling it. <laughs> so I would say not, I didn't, I didn't really quite understand what I needed to do to make that work in the beginning. And in hindsight, I would probably do things a little differently to make that a true Yelp of group breaking. Yeah, that can be a challenge, but I think that's, for me, that kind of stuff is part of the fun, right? The, the, the give and take the testing of an idea and seeing what, the market, quote unquote, the market, uh, wants to see or wants to do. And so, yeah, yeah I like that challenge personally of testing some things out and seeing what works and what doesn't. Where do you get your feedback mostly? Did you, you find this on Twitter or through email? How's your feedback? Flowing? Most of my feedback comes from Twitter or direct on e uh, email. And I think okay. primarily because well, on the podcast, those are the two main things that I say reach out to me on on Twitter or direct on email. Um, but even on the website, in the contact me, that's the you know the 
the the methods that I share to to reach out to me. And so, um, those are the two primary ways that I'm I'm getting feedback at this point. Nice. Plus, just the the metrics, right? I'm seeing what pages are getting the traffic. You know, um, that's a a big determiner too. You know, and f- for me, you know, I look and see some of the some of these the reviews that I do on a particular set or a, an old you know vintage product or whatever it might be have one level but for me like I've seen the the guides that I've given to how to ship PWE or how to ship efficiently mm-hmm. um, using various priority box sizes how to do a variation listing on eBay those are the things that continue to get traffic month after month after month versus a, a one a one-time bump you know with a, a more timely product review or whatever and so yeah. i look at traffic as well to get some of that feedback numbers don't lie right <laughs> it's true it's that's the good thing about metrics and, and you're so right like it's all it takes is that one that one legitimate page or post that it just it resonates in the google seo world and it's always popping up and you're always getting traffic. I've noticed that too, man. I have a couple of those pages on my site where I'm like, I haven't updated this in two years, <laughs> but yep. it's got 70,000 views. You know, it's like, what mm-hmm. the heck? Crazy. Yep. Um, you know, you earlier on, you mentioned that you found yourself spending 15, 20, 25 hours a week working on the site. And one yep. of the things I always like to ask people that are in like our situation is how do you find the balance or what do you do to make sure you're putting balance between your primary day job, your family and your, your side hustle? Yeah. So I would say, uh, first off, have open and honest conversations with my wife, right? How's it, how's my schedule looking? How's the balance between my time, you know, being reflected to you? Um, that's probably the most important thing, but yeah, I, I, it's, it's one of those things where, I'm a late night guy, so you, I know you're an early morning guy. I'm the flip side, right? I like to do things late at night. Um, and so balancing out things when kids are asleep is how I kind of make this work. Mm-hmm. Um, but, I, you know, I mean, I know. I know when I'm hitting those points where I'm either just ridiculously tired of what I'm doing or I can tell it's affecting my wife and the kids. And the, there's the ebbs and flows of that, right, where you, you just – like that to me is more important than my day job or – the side hustle, right? It's making sure my family is getting the right time from their dad and their husband. So, yeah, that makes sense. Do you have short-term or long-term goals for the site or both? Do you, do you establish goals? Are you a goal, a goal person? I am. I am. Yes. Some of those, um, most of those are metric oriented, right? Cause I can, you can measure those very easily, but I do, I do go in with the idea of, you know, I, w- I want to try to get, you know, X amount of post up every year. Um, I want to try to, you know, do this to my traffic and it's, it's a little different for each, but I've been trying to break it down in the monthly goals now. Right. So I'm trying to get, I'm trying to get eight unique posts out on the Patreon site and four up on the, the break of culture site. And, uh, I'm trying to do four podcasts a month. That's kind of been my 2020 goal. So very, very simple metrics. What about for the long term? So, so mm-hmm. for example, for me, part of where I'm currently at is over the next 
10 to 15 years, I would love to be able to grow the site and the podcast to a point where it's generating some supplemental income that will allow for me to retire early, kind of at that early retirement point for my my day job and and be able to make up the difference between kind of the full pension and the early retirement pension. Mm. And so I've got that that level of of a financial goal in my mind that's like a 10 to 15 year type goal. Do you do you go that far out when you're kind of thinking about what the the site and the podcast could become? Um, I definitely don't go 10 or 15 years. I can tell you that, um, which is in, extremely impressive. Um, no, I mean, I, of course, right. I, I look at this and I think, okay, the trajectory is nice. If we continue doing this maybe three years, four years from now, maybe there's an opportunity to do more of this as a full-time gig. Right. Um, and, and I've thought that from the beginning, right. And every year it seems like that gets pushed back because <laughs> you have more kids and the cost of living goes up. And then also you just realize like, it's, it's difficult. This, this hobby is difficult to scratch out enough cash to do that. Um, so, and it's evolving so quickly, right? No one, we went into this year and everything's already kind of flipped upside down because of COVID and, and the new, the new type of modern collector, right? As they've been saying, but yeah, I, I love, I love to continue growing this. I mean, of course I have those long-term aspirations of again, making it bigger than it is. And I think a lot of that's going to be bench clear media, right? How, how much can we tie this together to make it to where it's not just about me and the stuff that I'm putting out, but about the group as a, as a whole. So we'll see if that pans out. Okay. One other thing that I'm curious about is, is there something that you would say that you've learned outside of the hobby that has had the biggest impact for your success in the hobby? Yeah. So I would say that's a good question. Um, Making you think. Yeah, no, I, I would say it, it it's pro- it probably goes back to like trust. Trust is the most important thing that I think that that drives success. And if people can't trust you, or if you can't learn how to build trust with others, um, then it's all kind of it's all kind of for naught, if you ask me. And I, I feel like I've learned outside of the hobby, like the importance of being honest and no matter what being transparent, no matter what. And I've also learned in the hobby through, you know, situations that like trust with people. <laughs> that's, that's so, so incredibly important. And, um, yeah, there's a, there's a lot of great people in the hobby and you and I both know that, but also a lot of people in the hobby that are, are very, very selfish and very, uh, very dishonest. And it's, it's kind of sickening sometimes. So not being afraid to be honest, even, even if it's difficult. Sure. Yeah. I, I think for me, the answer to that is that reputation matters and yep. building your reputation, um, and, and is, is something that carries forward, that carries through that people see. And, um, when, like you said, when that reputation garners trust or respect, that is going to lead to good things in the long run. Um, and when it doesn't, you're going to, you're going to see people flame out or burn out a little bit more. <laughs> and so, um, for me that it, it's similar in that reputation matters. Mm. Like All that. right. Are you ready for in the spirit of how you approach things? I want to flip the, the script a little bit and give you a few rapid fire questions as well. Cool. All right. First off, 
favorite junk wax era set? Let's go with. Um, that's a yeah, that's a good one. Gosh darn it, I should know that. I would say it's not even really junk wax, but it's the era. I'll go 96, 97 Flair basketball. Okay, all right. Any particular reason? It's because I, I still have the set in my, in my books downstairs, and I've gone through it with the kids many times, looking through it. <laughs> okay. How about your favorite breakfast meal? Oh, biscuits and gravy, no question. Sausage, a hundred percent. Yeah. Yep. Favorite '80s TV show? That might be a challenge because you're you're on that cusp oh. of '90s was your prime, but do you yeah. have a favorite '80s TV show? Um, yeah. So I'd go Alf. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely go Alf. That is a good one. Yeah. All right. That. Was it? It was a it was a brief rapid fire. Hey, I like it. Very three, rapid, rapid, three rapid shots. fire. <laughs> three shots. All right, Ty. Thanks for for coming on today. I really appreciate it. But where can people follow you? Where can people find you and your work? Yeah. So go to breakerculture.com. You'll find all the stuff there, or just go to benchclear.us, and you'll see most of my content up there now too. So that's simple. Very good. Very good. Well, thank you for coming on the show. Thanks for having me, Mike. Appreciate it. Have a good day. You too.